cool. Well, I'm so honored to get to be with you guys. I love Houston Church Planner Network. I've been uh, friends with Chad for many years and uh, have gotten to be blessed by uh, your ministry. And I'm just so thankful for what your, the impact you're having on our city. It's such a huge city. There's such a huge need uh, for more churches. And so I'm just thankful for uh, you guys giving your lives to that. So I'm really excited to get to talk uh, to you guys today. I'm uh, married uh, with four daughters, all under the age of six. So if I, if I start dozing midway, like you know why, because i got a lot going on. Um, God, I grew up in the Clear Lake area. God saved me young, around age six or seven, but um, wasn't really, um, had a lot of theological uh, gaps in my understanding, especially of the implications of the gospel. So most notably thought I could lose my salvation. So it stole a lot of joy um, in me growing up. And uh, it wasn't until college when I started hearing really faithful expositional preaching and was in some really healthy uh, environments there that uh, God really radically reshaped uh, my understanding um, of who he is and and gave me a level of joy that I haven't seen since. So I went into the business world. I was there after college, was there for a couple years, felt led into uh, vocational ministry. Ended up going on staff at First Baptist um, as an intern for uh, a a season there. And then from there went up to Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. to do an internship uh, with that church, and then I, I was a part of our planting of Hope Church in the Jersey Village area back in 2012, and that's where we've been the last six years. Um, and so a little bit about our church, like the, the, what we attempted, kind of our goal, if we were to say kind of a one-line goal, like we wanted to be an authentic representation of biblical Christianity. And what we mean by that is we just want to take whatever the scriptures say and we want to let that shape who we are as a church. So that would shape us in like the fact that we do church membership and church discipline, the way we structure our polity and our church governance. But it also affects things like spiritual gifts and uh, missions and spiritual warfare that we're going to talk about today. We just wanted to be faithful to all of it. We didn't want to shy away from anything that um, our conservative tradition perhaps would have edged against or or anything um, where our just American Christianity might have uh, excluded. We wanted to say, what does the scriptures teach? And let's just try to walk that out. And so that was what we set out to do. So um, we tried to be biblical in all those areas, including the area of spiritual warfare. And when we started Hope Church, we really wanted this to be normative, like we see it is in scripture and in early church history. And so um, we'll talk about this in the coming months, but uh, that's one of the reasons we structured even our membership process to have these principles embedded in it. And I'll talk more um, about that as we go. But um, as far as how I got into teaching on spiritual warfare, being involved, being someone who would even uh, be up here talking with you guys about it, um, in God's providence, I had been drawn while I was in early years of ministry to just try to understand spiritual warfare. And so I was researching and was finding some good um, theological resources, spending a lot of time in the Word, and God providentially uh, met, uh, brought me to meet my now lead pastor, Peter Swan, uh, when my wife was going through some crazy stuff. She had um, had repeated instances of almost dying, these crazy undiagnosed illnesses that she had had as a pattern throughout her life. And uh, we, we met with Peter, who had been doing his dissertation on spiritual warfare in a missiological context across cultures. And so he had, he had been diving deeply into it, and we were um, just theologically aligned, and, and he just met with us to pray with my wife and saw that there had been some demonic stuff affecting her and some of those issues drove that thing out, and everything shifted from that moment in that, in that area. And so got my attention uh, big time because I'd been studying these things, trying to wrap my arms around it. Then I saw it walked out practically, and I was like, I've got to figure this out. And so that led me into a journey uh, of trying to grow in this because I had grown up uh, ministering in contexts that largely ignored this. Um, this. This was, I thought, a, a, a missing 
um, aspect of discipleship, and it pained me. I'd see guys stuck in pornography after they're fasting and praying and doing everything that we typically say somebody should do to fight that, and they couldn't get free. Or, or people dealing with crippling fear and anxiety that they just could not overcome. They were, they were praying. They were doing Bible studies. They were in accountability groups, but they weren't able to be freed from that fear or the rage or the depression, whatever um, was weighing on them. And so since we've tried to walk this out as a church, I can just tell you six years in, we've seen incredible fruit from this. Um, we've been really encouraged by seeing this um, neglected part of the word in the West really, I think, breathed into our congregation. And uh, it's been really cool for us. And so we're really passionate about seeing other churches um, step into this area and, and be a blessing in whatever way we can in your journey in that way. Um, and because we've just seen it so valuable for discipleship in our local church. And so um, you may kind of be coming in, you know, and have some kind of anxieties or fears, talking about spiritual warfare, wondering, you know, uh, maybe you're skeptical of me or, or like this whole thing. And I'm just want to let you encourage you to let the scriptures convince you. Uh, be Bereans. You know, you might be scared that this could become the focus of your church. Um, if you're if you uh, drift in, if you start pressing in, maybe it's going to be you know spiritual warfare everywhere, and that's all we focus on. And I just want to encourage that that Jesus is our focus, and you can have Jesus as your focus and still dive into this uh, because it's up to you as a pastor to lead and, and balance things faithfully. Uh, you might fear you might start getting attacked more. Like I don't know if I really want to step into this because I I don't want to start getting blasted. The thing is, you're a church planner. You're already getting attacked. I guarantee you. <laughs> But I just want to help equip you to fight back, okay? That's what we want to see. And then maybe you're like, man, I'm, I'm just kind of scared of what people will think if I start, like, pressing into this or start praying against demons or things like that. I just want to encourage you with Galatians 1.10 where Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so my challenge for you guys this tonight or this morning and then over the coming months, if you uh, join us for the next two, um, is, to, is to let the scriptures speak for themselves. Um, and don't let uh, your tradition or your preconceived notions about this topic keep you from pressing into whatever the Lord reveals to you uh, in his word. Okay, just want to encourage you in that. And also just encourage you that the primary focus is actually not spiritual warfare. It's Jesus. You know, and so I just want to encourage us to never get away from that. that. We're not encouraging you to get away from that. I want to read Romans 11.36. We want to be from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So that's my prayer for today, for this talk in spiritual warfare, for the future ones uh, coming, that it would bring great glory to Jesus. Um, so let me, on that note, let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll dive in. God, we love you only because you loved us first. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you that even though we're broken, sinful men who deserve your wrath, you and your love sent your son Jesus to enter into human history and live a perfect life that we couldn't live, to give that life on the cross, to pay for our sin, to raise from the dead and secure our justification through faith. Now, thank you for these men who have made that message uh, the thing that their life is built on and the thing that their ministries are built on and the thing that they're devoting their vocational life to, to spreading and to maturing people in the gospel. And God, I just I thank you for what you're doing in Houston through local churches like the ones represented in this room. God, and I'm also so grieved by what the enemy is doing, the way the enemy is trying to, to, to hold back the tide of your kingdom's advance here and around the world. And so, God, I pray against that. I pray that you would uh, empower us as pastors to understand your word at the level we need to to fight back for the advance of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. 
God, I pray against fear. Anything, uh, either fear of stepping into this because there's fear of the demonic or fear of what people would think if uh, anyone, if, if we press into something that is sometimes taboo in uh, our Western culture. God, I pray that there would just be a deep allegiance to Scripture. And I pray, God, for, for clarity. I pray for peace. God, I pray for deep discipleship in all of our churches. I pray for healthy churches that are, as you say in Ephesians 3.10, displays of your manifold wisdom to the heavenly realms. I pray that these churches would be that in our city and that they would be multiplying churches that would uh, see your kingdom advance powerfully. So may these men be blessed, may our time be blessed, and I pray that you would use it in whatever you want, in whatever way you want, to bring yourself the most glory possible, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to think about how you would minister to these um, situations. Uh, you know, what would you do with the six-year-old boy who's got uncontrollable rage, suicidal thoughts, uh, may, has, has had effeminate mannerism since age four? There, his parents tell you that there are ceramic crosses hanging on their walls that turn upside down overnight, who's waking up freaking out with nightmares most nights of the week, who, who, when they try to pray for him, covers his ears and screams uh, every time his parents come near him. I, I wonder what you would do for that little boy. I wonder what your, your first step would be. Or what about the godly man in your congregation who's struggling with pornography? He's reading the Bible. He's praying every day. He's in all the accountability groups. He's trying to walk out your counsel. Uh, and yet, he, and he generally hates a sin. And yet, he just can't get free of the stronghold. You know, how would you counsel that brother in your church? He's probably in your church right now. What about the stay-at-home mom who's kind of the missional mom? She's pursuing Jesus. Uh, she's discipling her kids. She's ministering to other ladies around the city. And yet she's constantly struggling with these undiagnosed physical issues. She's got medical problems that doctors don't know what to do with. And uh, she's getting so worn down that she's unable to really fulfill the ministry that she's been walking in. How would you minister to this woman if her husband was in your office asking you what to do? And what about you as a faithful church planter? You know, you're, maybe you're in your first year of your plant, you're being faithful to the Lord, and yet you're constantly dealing with uh, kids getting sick, nightmares, uh, crazy uh, situations at home. Your, your home stops feeling like a refuge and starts feeling like a war zone. What do you do with that? In each of those situations, the, the, per, the hurting person has generally tried every, everything that typically we know to do. And so once we've exhausted all these avenues of the world and that our conservative evangelical circles tend to say we should do, once we go to all the doctors and all the therapists and we read the Bible more and we're in yet another accountability group, then what? Are we just to conclude, like, this is just, that's just it. This is a fallen world. We're just going to be content with that uh, situation. Maybe. I mean, we certainly want to be willing to suffer and endure for the name of Christ. Amen. We, we, we were throughout Scripture called to do that. But what if we're missing the source of the issue in some of these situations? What if what they're dealing with is actually demonic attack and they could be freed if they were biblically ministered to uh, as such? And so if that's the case, then how do we even begin to become equipped in this area since it's likely foreign? If you're like me, when you grew up in this culture, it was pretty foreign to me. Uh, uh, in this culture, and, and that's really why I'm, I'm here today. I think that's why Chad uh, invited me uh, here today, because we're passionate about seeing believers and churches equipped uh, to fight well against the enemy's attacks, because we want to see God's kingdom propelled forward, and we want to see people freed of the enemy's grip on them. So this morning's part one of a three-part 
uh, workshop that we'll be doing this month, uh, April, uh, March and then April. So today, what I really want to do is dive into an introduction, and overview to the biblical reality of spiritual warfare. Then in March, Lord willing, we're going to take a look at, the, at a biblical theology of demons and demonization and examine how Christians can be affected by demons. And then in April, I'm hoping I'll get even more practical with you to, about, like, as a church planter, what can you do to walk in spiritual warfare for yourself, for your, the people around you, uh, touching on how we would minister to those types of situations that I just uh, gave, um, and, and then also talking about deliverance, prayer ministry, things like that. Um, and so each month I'm going to try to talk for about 30, 40 minutes, and then spend the rest of the time doing Q&A. So if you have questions, jot them down as we're going, um, and, and, and also pull me aside afterwards if that'd be helpful uh, to talk. So sound good? All right, so your notes uh, start with the biblical norm, um, where we're going to look at Ephesians 6, first of all. So we're going to be bouncing all over the place. Uh, this morning. So if you could turn with me to Ephesians 6, I want to uh, show a, how, how normative uh, spiritual warfare is in Scripture. So uh, let's start in Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So think, first of all, what we see here is that the devil has schemes that he's actively putting in place against us, and, the, and that the primary battle we're facing is not the flesh. It's the spiritual. It's the, it's the demonic. Now, what, and so how do, we, how do we process that? So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are, are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that, verse 11, we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we're not primarily wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the demonic, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that he knows how it's played out. In 2 Corinthians 2, he says, I'm not ignorant of how this thing's going down. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, I have often in my life felt pretty clueless about what the enemy is doing. And at any moment that I could say, oh, I'm not ignorant of what Satan's doing in this situation. To me, that, that is not a common thing uh, for me or my circles to have been able to, to articulate. And, and yeah, the scripture says our primary battle is, is not against the flesh, it's against the enemy. So what do we do with that? Go to uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, verse 17. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in 17. So this is Paul's talking to him, and he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So uh, generally when we, when we preach this or hear this, we're, we see them emphasizing Paul's love for the, for the, uh, the Thessalonians. And, and we should because it's a profound love. It's, it's uh, showing us the love that the Father has for us. But I want you to notice the four words in there that Paul just kind of throws down and then keeps moving. But Satan hindered us. Well, hey, man, we were going to do this thing, but Satan hindered us, but I love you guys so much. Like, he doesn't even stop to explain it. He just drops that bomb, keeps going. They doesn't explain it anyway. Like, can you imagine 
If one of if you guys or us, one of the pastors that you like to listen to walked up on stage and was like, yeah, you know, we we're going to do this building campaign, but Satan hindered us, so we're not going to anymore. We're just going to do this other thing. And then just keeps on going down the road, like doesn't even unpack that. No way. Like there's no way. I've never heard anybody do anything like that. And I couldn't imagine doing that. But those four words, I think, indicate in Scripture that that was that normative that Paul didn't even have to elaborate. In our culture, we don't know what the heck... We're talking about with that. We're like, man, come on. Like, you got to explain what you mean. Satan hindered us from this building campaign and why the money we just gave isn't going to go to the building. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, let's keep reading verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Let's keep reading what Paul says here. So he says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, uh, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For uh, we were with you, and we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you now, as, as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So he, what he doesn't say in verse 5 is, hey man, I had to send Timothy to come check out how y'all were doing, because I was worried that somehow your flesh had gotten to you, and you'd fallen prey to your flesh yet again. What he did say was for fear that the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And again, I cannot imagine a pastor in our evangelical circles on stage preaching and say, yeah, man, I wanted to send somebody to our people in India to see if the, if the enemy had taken hold of, of the church, right? I mean, that's just not how we typically talk, but that's how Paul talked. And again, doesn't even elaborate on it, just drops the bomb and just keeps moving in the letter. And our tendency, I think, in the West is to gravitate towards the flesh, towards the flesh and bones, things that we can see, and to minimize uh, the spiritual uh, and largely ignore, minimize the demonic, where Paul doesn't do anything like that. Um, And so I want to talk about why that is. So if you look um, historically in the 1700s, 1800s, you see the role of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution where uh, it was kind of the we can do whatever our minds and our hands and our feet set out to do. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can make it all happen. We see this elevation of knowledge and reason and logic and science and naturalism, self-sufficiency, and it begins to edge out the supernatural. Culturally, And so we got to this point where what some scholars would call split-level Christianity, where it's got the natural, which is kind of where we operate, and then there's that supernatural, Satan and demons and angels and stuff, because we read it in Scripture, so we believe it sort of exists, but it doesn't really affect us. We kind of operate here, they operate there, there's nothing really going on uh, in the middle, but, but that's... Uh, not what we see in Scripture, right? If Satan's real, we can't live as if he's not. Not when we see these kind of warnings throughout Scripture. But most of us probably can relate to that comment, right? Where we say, yeah, I believe the devil and demons exist, but if I think about my life, I really kind of do live as if they don't, or that they don't really affect me. And so spiritual warfare runs in the face of this post-enlightenment uh, industrial revolution mindset that most of us just grew up in. Uh, it's the air that we've breathed in the West. And the West is actually operating in a minority view. It's, it's operating in a minority view versus the rest of the world today. If you look at Christianity in a worldwide perspective, the West is a small minority in ignoring the spiritual uh, or minimizing, maybe not ignoring, but minimizing the spiritual. And in all of history, my goodness, are we a minority. If you look at where we are as Western uh, Christians and our view of the spiritual, the supernatural versus all of history, we are just a small minority. And in comparison to Scripture, which is by far the most important question, I think we're in a little bit of trouble if we're holding to the Enlightenment 
mindset toward the supernatural. Based on that uh, separation of the flesh and the spirit, we tend to only focus on the flesh uh, and not also on the spirit. So if you think about passages like Ephesians 2, where we, uh, 1 through 3, where we see Paul reference the world, the flesh, and the devil. You guys have probably preached that passage and, and thought through that. But what do we see in there? We see all three of those things are playing a role in our sin and our need to fight against our sin. You see James 1, where, uh, where James says, hey, I was worried that you would be tempted by your own desire. So it's the flesh. He's emphasizing the flesh. But then in Acts 5, Peter says that Ananias and Sapphira were deceived by Satan. So he ascribes their sin to Satan. Satan. Uh, we see the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 3.5, that he was worried that the tempter, Satan, had, had gotten to him and that their labor would be in vain. So we see in those passages the, the need to battle on both fronts. What I'm not saying is that everything's the enemy, nothing's our flesh, nothing's the world influencing us around us. I'm just saying we've got to be balanced. We've got to fight on both. Because many of us tend only to focus on the flesh and, and largely, unintentionally, I think, Ignore the spiritual realm. So we're fighting against flesh and blood things, which is awesome and good and what we should continue to do. Uh, But it's not good if we do it at the expense of warring against the spiritual realm. And so the problem with our theology is that we often have a missing foundation uh, because it all begins, uh, the the entirety of of history begins with this cosmic battle between God and Satan uh, that, that is still raging on today. And we're actually caught right in the middle of the battle, whether we like it or not. So spiritual warfare isn't just some kind of like thing that happens every now and then. Like spiritual warfare is a part of life on this fallen world. And we're walking in war, and everything that happens is a part of our day-to-day life is a part of that war. Now, there are times of increased attack. I think we see that scripturally. But if we want to use better terminology, perhaps instead of saying, I'm experiencing spiritual warfare right now, we could say, I'm experiencing an increased spiritual attack right now. But because we're always walking in the midst of this war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And so we have to live as if we're at war. And so the implication of this spiritual war, if we've largely ignored our enemy, is that we're often getting whipped in a battle that we don't know we're fighting. And I, and I presume that you guys as church planners, that probably breaks your heart as much as it breaks mine. To know that there are men and women and children walking through our churches that are are being beaten down by the enemy, uh, and we're largely, uh, as, as a Western culture, um, leaving them to, to, to be hit in that way. It's not something that's just off to the side somewhere. Like, this isn't just um, an interesting theological debate to have at Starbucks. Um, this is life. This is affecting the people in our churches, and um, we're getting whipped in a battle that we don't know we're fighting often. And so, uh, I pl- and so for me, like I am, um, I'm begging that I would be like Paul in Second Corinthians two, that I wouldn't be ignorant of Satan's schemes. And so I'm asking God, Lord, teach me. I want to know. I don't want to. I don't want anything in my culture to block me out. I don't want anything in my traditions uh, to mess me up in this area. Uh, teach me. I want to be faithful. Um, and as, as uh, they prayed in Second Kings six, I think a good prayer for us is, "Oh Lord, open my eyes so that I can see." You remember when he, uh, his servant, uh, he opened, asked for him to open his eyes, and he saw the the chariots of fire uh, uh, out around him. And God won a great battle on that day. I wonder um, how it, things would look if the Lord would open our eyes to see the battle that's waging around us, so that we can take aim and fight against it in that way. So as we think about our missing foundation. 
We need to start with Satan's rebellion. So the idea that Satan and it was originally a good angel uh, who rebelled against uh, God, wanted to be worshipped like God, so he deceived, uh, we think, scripturally, a third of the other angels who became demons, and they have now been uh, cast out of heaven onto the earth to seek to uh, deceive people and get them to worship Satan rather than God. And so th- that's the kind of the foundation that we're now walking in, where it's a battle for the glory of God, where Satan and demons are trying to steal our allegiance. Like, they get it when we're born into their kingdom, and they try to keep the stranglehold on that. Or for the, for the believers, they're trying to get into different parts of our lives and steal um, our allegiance. But we tend to miss that foundation. Uh, in the West. And so all of our preaching and counseling and discipleship tends to focus on flesh and blood issues, which again are real issues. They're big deal things that we need um, to focus on. And we do this because we love Jesus. Uh, we do this because it's Matthew 22 coming out, right? We, we love God and we love people because he's loved us. And, and, and he loved us so much, not that he, just that he paid for our sins, but that he rescued us, Colossians 1, from the kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So when he saved us, he did save us from our depravity, from our sin, absolutely, from our flesh, but he also saved us from the kingdom of darkness. Uh, and so we can't miss that. He's, and so he's claimed us and he's redeemed us, and he has now thrown us out back into the battle as redeemed soldiers who he wants to, to advance the kingdom um, in his name. And we can't miss that as we're kind of getting into this area, this foundational understanding of this cosmic battle between God and Satan. So there's two kingdoms in conflict, and what's at stake in the conflict is the glory of God. So when we talk about spiritual attack, it's, we think, trying, the, the enemy trying to steal God's glory and give it to the enemy, right? And so I want to make this clear. You know, everything we do either brings glory to God or to Satan. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. The implication is that in every moment of every day, we're, being, we're called to be bringing glory to God with our lives. There's only two kingdoms in conflict. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There's God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. And so there's no third option. So when we're giving glory to God, we're giving glory to God. When we're sinning, we're giving glory to the enemy. Even if we don't realize that we're doing. That's why, and, and it's also, there's only two kings in conflict in, in regards to other faiths, other religions. They're ultimately, all those things, source is Satan. So if you're talking about a Hinduism, you're talking about somebody who's ultimately worshiping Satan, even though they don't realize it. If you're talking about Mormonism, people who are ultimately worshiping Satan's kingdom, even though they don't realize it, because it's either Jesus or Satan. There's no third option in our world. And so, even though we're redeemed soldiers following Christ, what happens when we sin? is that we steal God's glory and we give it to the enemy. Sin is stealing the glory that belongs to God and we're redirecting it and we're giving praise to Satan, which is, I think, one of the reasons our sin is so painful and offensive to the Lord and why he hates it more than we can even imagine because sin is stealing the glory of the one who redeemed us, who loves us, who cherishes us, who chose us for his glory, who saved us for his glory and giving it to the very enemy of our souls. We see in passages like Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 60, Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 10, that we see that all of life is about the glory of God. Everything that we do is about God's glory. He created us for his glory. He chose us for his glory. He saves us for his glory. Everything we do, whether we eat or drink, it's all for the glory of God. And so spiritual warfare isn't the main thing. The glory of God is the main thing. 
And so a consistent prayer of mine and others at our church is, God, do in me today whatever it is that would bring you the most glory. I try to pray that when I wake up in the mornings. Uh, sometimes I'm too tired, but, but I'm, I'm like, Lord, please, whatever it looks like today, bring yourself glory through my life. So if part of that means me warring in prayer for my brother who's going through a hard time, then let me walk that out. God, I trust you. If part of that means me going through attack, God, I trust you. If part of that means me watching my four-year-old daughter get attacked, God, I trust you. If part of that means my death, then God, I trust you, because your glory is ultimate. And I, I don't want those things. I'm praying that those things won't happen, but I want God even more than I don't want those things. And I want my life to bring God as much glory as I possibly can with the days that he's given me. So God, please do that in me, whatever that looks like, whatever it looks like practically. And so we can talk about spiritual warfare, and we're going to, but we can't miss that, that it's all about the glory of God. Fighting the enemy is one aspect of being obedient and giving glory to God. It's, it's, it's an important aspect, but it's just one component of bringing God glory with our lives. And so don't want to overemphasize the enemy because ultimately it's, it's about Christ and his glory. So our current state, um, so with that foundation, kind of what do things look like? Where, what do we do? Uh, what do things look like now? So first of all, we see that God has maintained sovereign control. We see that everywhere throughout Scripture. In Job 1 and 2, Satan has come ask God permission to attack Job. Uh, and uh, that we, but we also live with two kingdoms in conflict, but the rulers are not equal. Okay, we, so the, Satan has immense power. Like I don't want to minimize that. I think I think sometimes in teaching, there's an almost this kind of minimizing of what Satan can do. Satan in Scripture has pretty significant power. We can't ignore that. But he has the power of an angel, a fallen angel. At that, it's it's an angel going against the God of the universe. So it's not a fair fight. Like this is not like the Warriors versus the Cavs. In which case, the Warriors are clearly the superior uh, team, uh, right? Like, this is like the creator of everything and a created being that he can snuff out uh, with, a, with a breath or a flick of his finger, as we see in Luke 11. And so in that, Satan has power, but we don't need to walk in fear because we serve the one who's sovereign over all things. And so we don't want to walk in fear, uh, but that, that knowledge of this should encourage us to walk faithfully with the Lord. Because if we're walking in open rebellion in any areas of our lives and giving allegiance to Satan in our anger, in our fear, whatever it is that we're not pursuing the glory of God, then, he's, then he, you're just opening yourself up for more attack against an enemy who has considerable power and who can attack and affect you in profound ways. And so that should encourage us. The idea of spiritual warfare, the idea of Satan's power should encourage us even more into faithful obedience and even more into pursuing the glory of God and surrender. Not fear the enemy, uh, but with a love for Jesus and, and a trust in his power and his plan. Other thing we see, Jesus has gained the final victory. First John 3, he came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2, he triumphed over the rulers and authorities at the cross and put them to open shame. Okay, so Jesus gained the final victory. We know how it's going to end, but we're in the already and not yet. The battle's still raging. So God's kingdom is advancing, but it's not yet to the fullness uh, where Jesus has come back and done away with Satan's sin and death, thrown him into the lake of fire, and ushered in the new kingdom. Uh, and so what we see now is the advance of God's uh, kingdom, beginning with Christ coming to earth, where people are being healed in his name, where demons are being cast out. Um, as his kingdom, and, and as we see that happen now, his kingdom's being advanced during this already and not yet. We see a, a taste, and we're seeing more and more tastes of his kingdom coming to earth, but we're not yet seeing the fullness, and that's what we're longing for and praying for. And so Jesus has already won that full victory over Satan, sin, and death at the cross, but he's not yet come back to fully do away with those things. So 
I want to think about this idea of God versus Satan framing us a world, a warfare worldview. Because I think that's what we would have in Scripture. If we're going to really have a biblical worldview, which I know all of us want, I think it has to be a warfare worldview. Uh, so I want to think about what that looks like. So first of all, it's a clash of kingdoms, right? It's all of life is a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Jesus gained the victory, but we're in this already, and, but not yet. And the battle is raging on. The two rulers aren't equal um, at all, right? We're dealing with the God of the universe and a fallen angel. And the core issue is worship, ultimately. And we're called redeemed soldiers who are seeking to advance uh, the kingdom of our king. And so I want to think about what that looks like. If you go to uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, I want to look there uh, with us to see a little bit more about what this looks like. So Luke 11, uh, starting in verse 1, uh, we're, we're about to see the beginning of the Lord, Lord's Prayer. <laughs> now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. So we see the glory of God. Your kingdom come. So in the, the, the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, we're praying, God, your kingdom come. We see this as just a basic thing about our faith is that we're, we're just to, to long for the kingdom of God to come. Drop down to verse 14 where we're going to see a little bit more practically uh, what this looks like. So uh, now, he, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking him, uh, from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do, do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So you see here, um, when Jesus talks about spiritual warfare, he jumped right into kingdom theology. Did y'all see that? So it's either about Satan's kingdom or God's. You're either with me or against me. You're either gathering with me or you're against me. And we see that driving out demons in this passage was a sign of the kingdom moving forward and advancing. And so the kingdom is advanced as we love our Lord, as we know him intimately, and as we follow him faithfully. Okay, let's look look at Mark chapter 6, verse 7. I want to look at an an example of this uh, in us... Uh, advancing the kingdom. So Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against him, of them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So when they preached the gospel, verse 12, 
Uh, we get that here, right? They, 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 he says, hey man, go out, preach the gospel. We're good with that. Most of us are like, amen, we can do that. And then in verse 13, they demonstrated the truth and the power of the gospel uh, by casting out demons and praying for healing and seeing God heal people radically. And so I, I would argue that we're called to not just proclaim the gospel uh, of the kingdom, but we're also to live out that kingdom. We're also to live out what it looks like to advance that kingdom. We're to proclaim the gospel, but also ask God to move in power, to do signs and wonders, to bring healing, to cast out demons, uh, and to move in great uh, advancement of his kingdom, like we also saw in Luke chapter 11. And so uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But so in our military context, we've got to know our enemy. That's another component. We've got to know his schemes. And, but at the same time, our ultimate focus is on Jesus. It's not on the enemy. Um, and so over-focus on the enemy tends to lead to fear, to pride, to feelings of inadequacy, and it, and it can ruin our understanding of our identity in Christ. Uh, Overemphasis on the demonic generally shifts our eyes from that is what is, what is most important, which is Jesus. And yet, we can't ignore or underestimate the demonic. You know, you hear that um, C.S. Lewis quote all the time, right? Like, you either two ditches, you either overemphasize or, you know, you underemphasize. And I, and I think that's good, but I honestly hear that used most of the time to justify ignoring the enemy completely. And I think in the West, we actually need to hear Lewis say that we're ignoring Satan too often. It's unusual. It happens, right? I, I come across these guys who see demons everywhere, and, and, and it's this crazy part of their, uh, their focus in an unhealthy way. But generally, most people I encounter tend to underemphasize the demonic if they struggle with that pendulum. And so I just would encourage us to not uh, let those kind of quotes or comments make us feel comfortable essentially doing the other half of that paradigm. Because we're like, yeah, yeah, I'm not overemphasizing the enemy. Well, man, you might be underemphasizing the enemy. Have you ever thought about that? And so it's, we don't want to underestimate the demonic. It just needs to be subordinate to our understanding and our focus on Jesus. And um, again, in America, I don't think generally our issue is underemphasis. I think it's or is overemphasis. I think it's generally underemphasis. And so I want to encourage us to focus on Jesus, but to not ignore the spiritual warfare component. So implications of this uh, battle to conclude before we get our, our Q and A. So we're we're getting whipped in a battle that we don't know we're fighting, oftentimes. And I hope that that grieves you as much as it grieves me. But it's God that advances his kingdom through us. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul planted a polished water, but God made it grow. So we're not saying go out there and make it happen in your own power. We're saying rely on the power of the Lord. Help have him rewire your heart, your mind, your actions, and then have him empower your seeking to advance his kingdom. And following Jesus' model, we want to advance the kingdom through ministry and love, truth, and power. You know, when you read the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus constantly ministered in all three of those, in love and in truth and in power. But most of us probably just grew up hearing about love and truth. We know how to love people well. We know how to be encouraging and minister to people's hearts. We know how to preach truth. And I know you guys do because you're, you're, you're pastors. Like, you, you are, you've got this down. But, he, but most of us often, I think, neglect the power aspect the healing, the casting out demons, the praying for God to move in powerful ways. And I just want to submit that we, we need to be balanced because the scriptures balance these things. And for us to only focus on two out of the three uh, puts us out of line with what the scriptures would teach. So let's be good at all three. Let's pursue God's word passionately. Let's love people deeply. And let's pray for him to move in power, to heal, to, per to cast out demons, and to do signs and wonders. In this battle, prayer is front lines activity. If you consider the reality of spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6, the, the battle is not primarily against the flesh, but against the enemy. 
and we can't touch the enemy, right? Like they're, they're kind of out there, then it would make sense that prayer is a pretty important weapon in this battle. I wonder if that's why prayer has such a strong emphasis in Scripture, and I wonder if that's why we are so bad at it in the West. Because, number one, we don't understand who we're fighting. We think we're fighting primarily flesh and blood, so we're really good at that type of stuff. But prayer, to us, just seems like this kind of thing like that we do, and we, we feel bad when we don't pray, and we know we need to pray, and we pray to ask God to give us stuff or to heal people or to do whatever you know, uh, part of your life you're, you're feeling a felt need. But, but the idea of prayer is warfare. I think it's foreign to us. But in Scripture, it's not. And it's, it's interesting. I think most of us live defeated lives in some ways because we're viewing prayer as a BB gun rather than as a bazooka, that it really is, right? And, and you think about Acts 6. These proto-deacons are, are elected so that they can give the apostles free time to do not just preach the word, but to pray. So the, the, the Holy Spirit found it so important that these leaders of the church be have their time not kind of doing the practical needs of the congregation, but that they're doing ministry of the word and ministry of prayer. And I wonder how many of us spend as many hours each week praying as we do spending on our sermons. Probably not many of us, right? And and I I include myself in that. I struggle with this. I'm still walking in this Western culture, and I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else that I need this rewiring to see prayer in the same way that the scriptures see prayer. All All that flows from us, all that we think, and all that we do brings either glory to God or to Satan. So we've got to live as if we're at war. So we've got to stop living as if we're at peacetime. Uh, Because we're getting whipped in a battle that we don't know we're fighting. And our people are getting whipped in a battle that they don't know they're fighting in most cases. And so we have to uh, stop living as if the only war we have is against our flesh. We've got to keep warning against the flesh. I'm not saying ignore those things. Y'all are killing it in that area, I would imagine. I'm just saying we've got to do both. We can't pit warring against the flesh versus warring against the enemy or the world. We've got to be balanced in all things. And so we're going to learn in the coming months how to do battle more practically um, in those areas. But uh, for now, I just want to kind of stop, do some Q&A, and then I'll kind of wrap up with where we're going to go from here. But um, if you're you're asking me like nitty-gritty stuff about stuff I know I'm going to talk to the next month, then I may just kind of lovingly punt down the field to that uh, next month. But I'd love to just talk through anything I can be uh, helpful of what we talked about or anything else you're wondering about, and we can kind of go from there. So just, I don't know if you have a mic if you want that or if you just want to talk loud. So, yeah. You can just repeat the question. I will. Yeah, I thought about that. Call. What's your name? Uh, Andrew. Uh, my question is, what are some things that you can do as you lead your congregation to uh, practically touch to this reality. As we live in this Western world, what are some things maybe in a worship service or in a weekly schedule that kind of remind us of this spiritual reality? Yeah. So the question was, what, what can we do to remind our congregations of this spiritual reality in our just day-to-day Christian life? And that's a great question. I think preaching expositionally, when you get to these passages like Ephesians 6 or 1 Thessalonians 2 or 3 or any of these host of the ones I put in your notes, like just this massive amount, I think when you hit that passage, Talk about it, explain it. I think um, teaching on prayer and the importance of prayer and in your discipleship relationships, having another category. But I think um, one thing I always counsel anybody who's kind of stepping into this in a, in a level they haven't before, especially as a pastor who has an influence over your whole church, is to make sure you always teach something before you expect people to walk out that or um, where you expect them, uh, to try to like do something kind of like with church discipline like when, we're, when people become understand like whoa Matthew 18 exists first Corinthians 5 exists like we need to 
to hold people accountable to this. Like, you don't just, like, wait for the first big sin issue and just do church discipline. Like, you've got to teach on that um, to your congregation, prepare them, have a, give them a worldview for the local church and membership and church discipline so that when somebody's walking unrepentant sin and won't turn from it and you need to remove them from the church, they're already ready. So same thing with spiritual warfare. You don't just kind of come in and say, all right, we're going to start casting out demons, you know? Like, you've got to teach and get a worldview um, of the two kingdoms in conflict, of the glory of God and the enemy wanting to steal the glory of God, of the importance of prayer, all those things. So that'd be my kind of initial piece. It's something kind of like this content is just kind of in, in your uh, your day-to-day preaching, teaching, you know, discipleship. Yeah, great question. What else? Emotions for sure as a as a yeah. first it's kind of a step mm-hmm. for some people into salvation and for other people for in the life of the believer uh, re- releasing the power of the kingdom in their life so they can live the way that God intended yeah, if you sure. could if you could speak to that yeah so essentially what your question is is do you default to being demonic or do you have these other components like prayer and counseling even salvation, things like yes. that. Is that kind of asking? Yes. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And that's my emphasis was trying to say when you've done all those things and somebody's still hitting a wall, then maybe there's another category for the demonic. So absolutely, counseling, biblical counseling, healing prayer, um, biblical, you know, just understanding and changing your mindset about things. Um, if somebody's not a believer, obviously that's a huge hindrance and that's their primary issue is they need to trust in Christ. Um, so yeah, I'm viewing this as a very important component that is ignored, but not the only component. There's all those other world flesh and the devil. So the world influences that they're letting in their lives that need to be maybe cut off. Things in their flesh do need to be fought. Um, things, the sin patterns, you know, um, areas where they're not, you know, walking in faithfulness to the Lord. So yeah, I would I would say both hands. Yeah. Have, have you put together any kind of programs that you can train your people? to help others with these issues? Uh, is that As far as spiritual warfare stuff? Well, I was thinking just even in terms of damaged emotions. You yeah, know, we, we do. Yeah. So the, okay. the question yeah. is, do we have anything to I heal damaged emotions? Yeah. The third, I imagine that's the third. Uh, yeah, so that's... So, uh, April 25. Yeah, so potentially. That's definitely a part of it. telling us to stay tuned. Stay tuned. But yeah, but the question is, do we do stuff to heal you know, for people healing emotions? Absolutely. We, we have a team of... 
uh, men and women that's led by one of our elders who they will meet with people to talk through just deep pains from their childhood, things like that, and help them process. We have biblical counselors that we outsource very regularly to. We have a budget line for that. Um, So we definitely do that. We also do train our people to do ministry in the spiritual warfare component, which I will talk about um, in the coming months. And we have a pretty extensive training process for that. But most of the ministry and spiritual warfare stuff happens through our congregation as opposed to just the the elders doing all of it. So we we really want to live out that Ephesians 4, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So, yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, I... I know some some Christians will say, you know, well, if you're a believer, then you're exempt from, like, you could never have this kind of, you know, demonic uh, oppression, affliction, possession, all those kinds of words. Can you speak to that a little bit for us, like, how, how, how you handle that with your people? Yeah. So the question is, what do you do with the comment that is often made of, once you're saved, the demonic essentially doesn't affect you in any real meaningful way. Um, and I think I would first of all just point to all these passages um, that have this strong emphasis to believers he's writing to and saying, you better watch out for the enemy. Uh, Ephesians 4, you're giving Satan a foothold, a tapas in the Greek, which is where we get topography. So you're giving him at land in your life, theoretically. So um, that would imply, you know, some, something's there in your life. Um, I think that just the, the, the host of, of Scripture is pointing to this idea of Christians being affected by the demonic. And I am going to talk a lot about that uh, next month of just the, the theological um, of how Christians can be or not be affected by demons. And for the interest of time, I probably don't want to totally, I can t- I'll talk to you offline, I don't want to like open up that can of worms without time to like unpack it theologically. But um, I definitely think that Christians can be affected by demons in, in significant ways. And in probably more ways than you would have walked in here presuming if you had kind of been influenced by that kind of a comment of once you're saved, you kind of don't really need to worry about the enemy. The enemy is Second Corinthians 4, just blinding eyes to the unbelievers to see the glory from seeing the glory of Christ, which he is. But I think there's so many other passages as well of his influence on Christians. So yeah. When you were referring to the foothold, the topos, um, uh, basically uh, you see Christians that there are windows that Christians let open in their life, places. And you probably have a list of those. Yeah, that's going to be the main, a big chunk of uh, next month. Yeah, we'll be focused on how Christians can be influenced by the demonic, what, where we would open ourselves up for that, how we push back against it. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hey, man, I appreciate how you went about this. Uh, do you find any correlation and those who actually recognize the spiritual warfare going around them to, to those who are actively sharing the gospel. So those who are actively, regularly sharing the gospel, engaged with lostness, do you see that they recognize the spiritual warfare more than those who are not necessarily actively, regularly sharing the gospel with people far from them? Yeah, great question. The question is, do, do I find that people who are more active in evangelism and, and being with the lost, are they more primarily more open to seeing the spiritual warfare component? Um, uh, or are they, or are people who are not as engaged with evangelism less likely? I think probably, I don't know that I would have automatically said that, but I do think, I mean, we see you advance the kingdom through love, truth, and power. And if you're, if you're doing that, if you're engaging in love and in power, and you're invading the darkness with the light of Christ, then you're going to be getting pushback. And so I think it's probably very easy I think that's why missionaries generally don't struggle with this this topic. Uh, once they've gone over to the field, I think 
they're the most ripe for teaching, encouragement, questions, all those things, because uh, they're seeing it uh, in such a strong way. Because and oftentimes they're, they're trying to pierce places that the light literally isn't. Uh, there are no believers. Uh, and so the enemy is, 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 has, is even stronger in those areas. So, yeah. Great. Yeah. I thought I saw, I thought I saw hands. Yeah. I could ask a question. Um, I think in point number four, uh, the second bullet point, <coughs> two rulers are not equal. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really important point, especially in the culture that we live in that's just inundated with uh, Eastern philosophy. We have Jesus versus Satan and the equal battle. Um, maybe you could say a few more words about that and how, that, how you see that's yeah, so, as a que- so another the question is um, to talk on the idea of the two kingdoms not being equal, uh, how we see that playing out. Um, I, think, I think the biggest way I would practically see that playing out is the idea of fear, which is what I was trying to hint at, is that if you think the, that uh, or fear or ignorance or ignoring. So if you think Satan doesn't really have any power against Christians, you're not going to be worried about it. So you kind of ignore it and act as if it doesn't matter, which I think is unhelpful. But if you're uh, really freaked out by it, you've read a bunch of Frank Peretti novels and like you're totally freaked out by this thing, then like you might be like uh, to, tempted to think that like the enemy and God are kind of really wrestling this thing out and wondering who's going to win, you know? And um, or man, I don't want to step into something because I don't know if God can could or would shield me from from attack or whatever. And so I think that's the biggest area I see um, is just a reminder of just the bigness of God and, and his sovereignty is what fuels everything, I think, in our lives as Christians and, and in spiritual warfare, that we're serving the God who's numbered our steps, who chose us before time, uh, who has literally mapped out every one of our of our lives. And uh, and so he's sovereign over everything. And we see throughout scripture that Satan has to ask permission even to attack. And God only allows attack in those instances where it's going to ultimately lead to his glory in a greater way than would have. You know, you think of Genesis 50 where Joseph, it's not explicitly spiritual warfare there, but that idea that, you know, what you meant for evil, brothers, God meant for great good. It's the same with the enemy. What the enemy means for evil, killing Jesus on a cross, meant our salvation, right? And so we see that throughout Scripture. I think it's important to think about and remember. Yeah. One of the things that was very aware of, ministering in Africa is that the ministry goes forward most of the time it's a breakthrough through a power encounter mm-hmm. and I what about here in the West yeah. just talking to church planners uh, yeah power encounter uh, so the question about yeah, power yeah so power encounter, encounter would mean um, some act of uh, God's supernatural power happening in a situation, somebody getting healed, yeah. Uh, yeah. radical salvation of somebody who is against Christianity, things like that. I definitely think it has an impact. Uh, it's certainly in a culture, in cultures in Africa that are more uh, fear power based as opposed to us with our kind of more, uh, uh, blanket on the term, but um, they're, they're obviously more uh, impressed by power uh, than, than we would be generally here. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, if you, uh, I'm pretty sure that if you uh, were sharing the gospel with somebody and uh, they were 
pretty skeptical, and you said, well, are you in any pain right now? And they're like, actually, I've had, you're about to have knee surgery because I tore my ACL. You pray, and their knee's healed on the spot, and they're dunking that day, right? I mean, they're, that's going to get their attention. So I think I, I do think that we need to incorporate the love, truth, and power that Acts 4, 29, and 30. God, give us boldness to share the gospel and perform signs and wonders and, and heal through the name of your son, Jesus. So I think that's what we want. Um, I think that we should encourage that. And Houston's the most diverse city in the U.S., right? And so we've got every type of culture and every type of worldview um, here, and so many of those are more power-based. Um, so I think that's that's really crucial, um, even for y'all's ministries. Yeah. yeah, the reason I brought it up is I noticed you have uh, Timothy Warner mm-hmm. in your in your notes. Yeah. Well, I grew up in one of those churches, too, where we didn't talk about this stuff. Yeah. And then took a class with Timothy Warner, cool. and he actually had videos of people uh, being released. I yeah. mean, at, this was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and yeah. you know, I thought stuff really isn't real. You know, well, that was the first you know kind of look at this whole yeah. stuff. For sure. I, I, you know, he teaches a whole he taught a whole class on power encounter. Yep. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a great Timothy Warner is yeah, is great. And I think for time, that's probably a good transition. Um, I put some resources at the end of your notes. Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare by Clinton Arnold uh, is, is a good one that's talking about a lot of what um, we've talked about today. He is one of the scholars that's doing the e- that's a part of the ESV study Bible, so he's a very conservative scholar. I think he's at Talbot. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but it's not that. Um, he's a great author. Timothy Warner, Spiritual Warfare. I think it's out of print now, but you can get it on Amazon used. It's a good one. It's kind of just the basics. And then Christianity with Power by Charles Kraft. Uh, he uh, this this book is really just on the worldview, and it's trying to help see a, a, a biblical worldview of power uh, in Christianity. So, um, as far as where we go from here, I would encourage you um, to pray and process through the handouts, those passages. If there's any parts that didn't resonate, uh, dive into the passages. Shoot me an email. I think my email is on there. I'd love to dialogue more, answer any questions I could um, could help you with. But if you process through this and, and you're convinced by the scriptures that this is legit. And this is biblical, and this is something that you should do. And I just want to challenge you to, to go for it uh, and to commit to just say, God, whatever, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Whatever uh, it makes me look or however it affects my life or ministry, I just want to be faithful to your word. And so I just want to encourage you and challenge you guys with that. Um, my next two workshops, March 21st, um, I'm not sure locations yet on these, but we'll be talking about demons, uh, biblical theology of demons, so looking at different types that we see in Scripture, demonization, uh, so how people can have demons attached to them in Scripture, and then how the demonic can affect Christians. So that'll be our big focus uh, in March. And then in April, we'll talk, um, in light of those things, how to battle practically in these areas, uh, seven primary areas in a church planner's life that you're going to uh, want to do battle. I'll briefly touch on deliverance, casting out demons uh, that month. Uh, in that regard uh, in April 25th. So I would love for you guys to be back um, if you're able to and uh, be honored to get to continue this journey with you all and I'll just continue to be praying uh, for your churches and thank you for your faithful labor in our city and and just keep at it. Uh, I know it can be hard and discouraging and feel isolating but uh, just know that you're not alone and and that we're cheering for you and we're thankful for you. So I'm going to pray for you and then we'll have a few minutes before the, the next session. God, thank you so much. For these men, their churches that they represent, and Lord, we thank you that you let us be a part of the battle uh, that, that, that we're in, and uh, we thank you that you did not leave us ill-equipped. You gave us your word, you gave us your spirit, you gave us one another as churches, and uh, I pray, God, that we would be those who deeply uh, treasure your word and submit to it in every area of our lives. 
even in areas where your word brushes against our cultural uh, defaults. And so I pray, God, wherever that is the case, in spiritual warfare, with uh, the gifts, with anything, with our church structure, with church discipline, any of these things where our culture would tend to be different than what your word teaches, I pray that we would be shaped by that. And then where there's blind spots for each of us, God, that you would open our eyes to see your word clearly. I pray you'd block out the enemy in every way that uh, the enemy would be coming against these men, against their churches, against their marriages, against their parenting, against uh, their discipleship. May they be protected in Jesus' name. May your hand rest on them in power. Would you use them to be bold with the gospel? Would you work signs and wonders and healings through them? Would you give them faithfulness in their preaching and their teaching and their discipleship? God, would they be faithful and godly? I pray that they would pursue holiness with everything that they have. I pray that they would not be men who uh, are lax in their holiness, but that they would see the weight of your glory in everything that we do. Lord, that that would drive each of us to pursue you uh, and pursue holiness and to pursue faithfulness to you. God, I pray that as we uh, continue getting to hear uh, more from your word, that you would uh, move in power, that you'd minister to each of us in the way that we most need it, and that you'd advance your kingdom through us in the most powerful way possible for the greatest glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks.